President Nixon stood before a crowd in Walt Disney World in November of 1973 in the face of mounting scrutiny about his handling of what became known as the Watergate scandal, and he delivered some famous farewell last words. Some of you may remember this. He said, well, I am not a crook. <laughs> Turns out, as a matter of fact, he was a crook. And a few months later, after which the White House was asked in order to give transcripts of conversations that were had there, and those transcripts ended up to be edited, and through an ensuing Supreme Court case, they were forced in releasing what became known as the Nixon tapes. The Nixon tapes, of course, showed that Nixon was involved in a tremendous cover-up, a cover-up into what happened probably about a year before then, a Democratic break-in of the Democratic, uh, excuse me, a break-in of the Democratic headquarters, his opponents at the time, um, in order to plant surveillance equipment that would allow them in order to get a bit of a leg up on their opponents. These were his famous last words. And in many ways, this would lead to his eventual conviction within the Senate and his resignation as president in light of a pending conviction there in the Senate. These were his famous last words. In many ways, last words are important to us. They're the ones that we are remembered by. They're the ones that get wrapped up into our legacy. The text that Gary just read for us is from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Bible and, and the fifth book of Moses. Moses had just led the people out of Egypt. He had split the Red Sea. The people were walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, and he had been leading them through the wilderness for the last 40 years. He was leader through countless rebellions, countless grumblings, countless miracles, and countless frustrations along the way. So what did Moses have to say to the people of Israel in, as his last words, his legacy, as you might say? What was he going to say? What might you have said if this would be what you would be remembered by? Well, it turns out that Moses actually had quite a lot to say, roughly about 30 chapters worth of material. And I <laughs> promise you that we are not going to be in any way covering 30 chapters of material today. But if we could isolate it down to one chapter, that chapter would, of course, have to be Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that chapter would contain what we would like to call the heart of the law, which is the title of today's message, the heart of the law. You see, chapter 6, for many of you, as you might be familiar, it is not only a, a chapter about family discipleship, but it is a chapter that deals with who we are as people. It deals with what motivates us, what drives us. It deals with the core of our very being. If we were to choose what a big idea for today's passage would be, it would be this. Obedience to God flows out of a heart changed to love him alone. Obedience to God flows out of a heart changed to love him alone. And this passage as well is broken down into four distinct commands that Moses is giving his people. We see the first command is a, a call to hear. 
The second one is a call to savor. Then we need to respond in trust and respond in remembrance. In many ways, what we see in this chapter is going to set the stage for the entire Old Testament. You could say that this is a bit of a microcosm of the Old Testament. When Israel is following after the Lord with their entire hearts, with all of their being, then they are following after his commandments. As we read, it goes well with them. But when their heart begins to wander, when they begin to doubt, when they begin to forget, they forsake the Lord and they begin to walk in their own ways. So let's begin with the first major section. It's a call to hear. Just so that we can get a bit of a full picture here of what's going on, we're actually going to take a little bit of a step back into chapter 5. We can see from chapter 5, verse 22, that Moses is addressing the people after their 40 years wandering in the desert. So this is not the generation that came out of Egypt, but this is the, now the new generation. And in chapter 5, we see that Moses is retelling them the Ten Commandments as a way of reaffirming the covenant to this new generation. The old generation has now died off. Now there's a new generation coming. And many Bible scholars will point out that after Moses retells the Ten Commandments, what he does throughout his, the remaining sermons throughout Deuteronomy is really an explanation of the Ten Commandments. And so today we're going to be dealing with the first commandment and the second commandment. So after repeating the Ten Commandments, Moses gives us a little bit of a behind-the-curtains look to the events that occurred when he first gave them in, Moses, in Exodus 19 and 20. We see in uh, chapter 5, verse 22, it says, These words the Lord spoke to all of your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. So the Lord, when the Ten Commandments were first given, they were given to the entire community that was there in Israel. I think in, in my mind, I always thought of, you know, the Ten Commandment movie where the Lord is giving them directly to Moses himself. But that's not what seems to be occurring here. It seems that the Lord delivered them directly to the whole assembly. And when the people heard the Lord's voice, they became afraid. They thought that they would die because of the glory and the greatness of the Lord's voice. And so then they sent Moses, and we can find this in the rest of chapter 5, to act as a mediator for them. They said to Moses, you need to go, you need to listen to what the Lord has to tell us, and then you need to come back, and we're going to listen to you, we're going to listen to you, and then we're going to hear what you have to tell us. And so here at the beginning of this passage, we see two hears, one in verse 3 and one beginning in verse 4, and what Moses is telling them is exactly the words that the Lord had commanded him to tell them. This is how they are going to be successful in the land that the God is about to bring them into. And so, as we can see in verse 1, Moses is setting this up. He says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. I'm going to remind you of them. And he goes on and he says in verse 3, hear therefore. And also down in verse 4, he says, hear, O Israel. Now that word here, that's actually where we get, in many ways, the title of this particular passage. Perhaps you have heard of this prayer that the Jews would pray. 
It's called the Shema. And Shema is really in reference to the word hear, listen. Now, don't be confused. We're not talking about passive hearing like you might be uh, when you were listening to a podcast or when you're at a lecture. No, this is talking about active hearing. This might occur in within your home when your wife might come up to you and may be giving you instructions and you might be a little bit distracted by an email that you might have at work and she asks you, are you listening to me? And you say, yes. And she says, that's not really what I'm asking. I'm asking you if you heard me, hear me, right? We're talking about active hearing here. These are ears with legs, as you might say. And just like the Israelites, we too are called to hear in this passage. We are called to act on these words in particular. This is not just hear and acknowledge, but we need to have actions behind them. And so in verse 4, when Moses is beginning to give them the commandment, he says, hear, O Israel. You need to listen to this. You need to act on this. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, remember what I said earlier. This is Moses expounding on the Ten Commandments, and so this corresponds with the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. It's important to note that this phrase is not necessarily trying to make a statement about the nature of God, so much as it is trying to say that there is only one God and one God alone. There is Yahweh. Yahweh is our God. And this is particularly important because the nations all around them were falling after many gods. They had many other gods that they would worship. And that's why when you see, perhaps in the Old Testament, when people are coming and seeing the God of Israel, they had no problem saying, praise be to the God of Israel, because they would have no problem praising other gods. They would likewise maybe go to the gods in Egypt and say, praise be to the gods of Egypt. No, the revelation that there was only one God and that worship alone is to be exclusive to that one God is what set Israel apart from all the surrounding nations. In fact, so foundationally apart that, like we said, this became their Shema prayer, which they would pray in the morning and in the evening. And this verse, the next one, is what I would argue makes Israel even more unique. It says in verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Okay, so you have one God now. Now, how do you please that God? This also flies in the face of all the surrounding nations. They would also think about how can we please this God? Is there acts of worship that we can commit? Is there acts of self-denial that we can commit? Acts of self-harm that we can commit? Acts of sacrifice that we might be able to commit? But no, Yahweh says, our God says, no, you honor me, you bring me honor by loving me with your complete heart. You see, loving God with our complete heart really means treasuring him above all else. It means viewing everything else when compared to him as worthless because he is so surpassingly precious. Now, I, I can't say that word precious, of course, without thinking of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings about his precious, right? But all of that being said, the picture of Gollum that we have can kind of lend what it means to hold something as being holy precious. 
Gollum obsessed over the ring. He structured his life around the ring. He forsook pleasure for the ring. He forsook comfort for the ring. He forsook food for the ring. He even forsook his own family and his own friends. It's not only saying that God is to be our God alone, but that obedience that we are to have is to be driven out of love for him, that we are to hold him as exceedingly precious. What it really comes down to is not committing the sin of idolatry. Brad Bigney's book, Gospel Treason, is helpful for us to understand what is idolatry in this way. It says, idolatry is who or what you worship, it's what you long for, it's what your heart is set on. And if you're tempted to think that perhaps this might only be an Old Testament message, that this is a message that maybe doesn't apply in our current situation, I would encourage you guys to just consider the words that John has to write at the end of his epistle in 1 John. He ends his epistle with these words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Those were his last words. So if this is the warning that we are called to hear, and particularly hear this message that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and all of our mights, and if Moses is telling us to listen and to act, to not commit the sin of idolatry, how do we know? How do we know if perhaps we have committed the sin of idolatry in our hearts? And so why don't I just ask a couple of questions that might allow you to turn your thoughts inward towards your heart? If you've had a bad day at work or at school or at home with the kids, what is the thing that you most easily reach for, the thing that you most easily run to? What is something that you might easily get angry or frustrated about? What is something that you might seek in order to protect at all costs? Is there perhaps a topic that is totally out of bounds or off limits at your house? As we begin to think through those four questions, you can kind of see that it's difficult in many ways to draw a line between what is idolatry and and what may not be. And what may be idolatry for one person might not be idolatry for another person, even though it may be the same thing. So I would just encourage you guys to ask God. Psalm 26.2 says, Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. I'd also encourage you to perhaps ask someone who may be close to you that you trust. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Ask God ask others. Moses is calling us to listen, to hear how do we keep ourselves from committing the sin of idolatry, to view God as our ultimate treasure. But secondly, we are also called to savor. There's a call to savor, and this is verses six through nine. In many ways, the call to hear is, what am I supposed to hear here in this passage? What am I supposed to hear? Love the Lord your God. The call to savor, and in 
in many ways, the rest of the points is the how. How do I love the Lord my God? Verse 6 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now, what the word heart is really getting at, and we've already said this, is it's the core of our individual. It's the core of our being. You may remember that Jesus, when he is addressing and reiterating this commandment in Mark 12, 30, he adds mind to that list. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So we're not talking only about our heart, but it's also our thoughts. They are our emotions. We are to know these words. We are to feel them within the core of our being. We are to think about them, and we are to let them drive us. And he goes on to describe what that may look like within our lives. In verse 7, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. He's giving, in many ways, opposites in order to say, if you do it from this end, and if you do it from this end, then everything else in between is going to be all-encompassing. A good example of that might be for our marriage vows. We might say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health. Opposites in order to say there is an all-inclusive nature of this, always. He goes on in verse 8 in order to say, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Now, the Jews took this quite literally. They did take scripture, put it in boxes, put it on their arms and on their foreheads and on the doorframes of their houses. We, of course, are not taking this literally. You don't see any of us walking around with pictures and scripture written upon our foreheads or on our hands, but... What the, what the core of this is, is that our hands and our minds are to be dictated by Scripture. Scripture is, to us, supposed to be like a fish is to water. It is to be completely surrounding. It is material that is pumped in and pumped out. And just like if we were to remove a fish out of water and we would see it twitching and writhing there on the ground, that is our soul when we remove it out of Scripture, twitching and writhing. And so how do we do that? How are we so influenced then by Scripture that it is written on our hearts and our minds that we are surrounded by it, that we pump it in and then we pump it out? Well, in many ways, we can look to Psalm 1, 1 through 2, which is a reflection on this particular command. In Psalm 1, 1 through 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. In Psalm 1, we notice a language that's very similar here. There's someone who is walking. There's someone who is standing. There's someone who's sitting but that person is not sitting in the law of Scripture. He's sitting with wickedness and evilness. It's the same language that we see here in Deuteronomy 6, except it's the opposite. Instead, we see in Psalm 1 that his delight 
is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. That's the concept of remaining in the word, of resting in the word, of being grounded in the word, of savoring the word. We're called to savor. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the word savor, but what comes to my mind is a picture of a steak. (laughs) Savor, right? Now, imagine with me if you were to go perhaps to your favorite steak restaurant, whether that is Fogo de Chao's, Outback, Longhorn, St. Elmo's, whatever. You choose it. That's where we are. And the waitress has just brought out for you the perfectly cooked steak. I'm talking about the perfect seasoning, the perfect accompanying of vegetables. She sets it down in front of you, and you are just about to cut into it and take your first bite. You are going to savor it, as you might say. But out of the corner of your eye, something catches your attention. You notice that your brother has also received the same perfectly cooked steak, and the waitress has set it down in front of him, and he has just started absolutely tearing into it. He has lathered it with ketchup in A1 sauce. I know, right? Sin in many ways. And what he has also done is he just begins to wolf it down, huge pieces all at a time. And he is finished in three minutes. And he gets up and he walks away and he's got other places to go and other things in order to do. He did not take time in order to savor the message of that steak. And in many ways, unfortunately, that is often how we come to God's word. You see, God has prepared his word perfectly for us. For us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. But we come with condiments and extra conditions. We wolf it down because oftentimes we have other places to go to, other things to see. We don't take time to enjoy it. We don't take time to allow it to be as it is told us here in Deuteronomy 6. Now, of course, I'm not talking about God's word being on our minds constantly. I realize, of course, that there's work that we need to do. There are kids that we need to raise. There are meals that we need to prepare and conversations that we need to have. But what it is, is in many ways, is that Scripture is never far out of reach for us, as you might say, mentally. I think of the picture in Cinderella of the fairy godmother who pulls her wand out of midair as if she has a little shelf there. In many ways, that's what God's word is supposed to be for us. And the best analogy that I could kind of think of for that would be our phones. You see, they are always here with us. They are by our sides. They're there when we talk, when we teach, when we sit, and when we rise. And in some spooky ways, as well, they are always in our hands and between our eyes, right? That's the language that's here. That's what God's word is to be for us. We are to delight in it. We're to meditate on it. We are to savor it. Now, I know that has been a lot, and I have to be honest, as I've been reading through this passage in preparation for this message, I've been convicted as well that in many ways, this is not God's word to me as well. Is it really truly on my mind as I go about this, my day? So I just want to offer you guys four encouragements to hopefully encourage you to have God's word on your mind as you read your Bibles. 
the first encouragement that I would give you guys is I would encourage you to read to see. Read to see. Very often we as Christians, we talk about Bible reading and the necessity of it, and yet very often we confuse the act of Bible reading with the purpose of Bible reading. When we read the Bibles, we're not just reading them in order to gain information, but no, we are reading their Bibles in order to see God, see what he is doing, see how he was working. This is, to, of course, to distinguish us from the Pharisees who would just read in order to appear before others, in order to appear holy. They would just read the Bible, but they wouldn't allow the Bible to allow them to see God. Jesus himself says this in John 5, 39 through 40. He says, you searched the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life by just searching through the scriptures. But it is the scriptures that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures in order to figure out and find out about who Jesus is. We read scripture in order to see God. Secondly, we read to change. Tim Keller has often said, if no part of the Bible is offensive to you, then you aren't reading the Bible close enough. We read to change. That's because there is a deep wrestling that we go through when we read the Bible, and it is called a sword for a reason, because oftentimes it cuts deeply. But we know that the change that results from the cut is often is always, excuse me, for our good and for God's glory. We need to read with the Spirit's conviction within our mind. Thirdly, we read to dwell. In many ways, that is very closely to the word savor. We read to dwell. We read to think deeply on God's word. We turn it over, as you might say, within your mind. We memorize it. And over the last seven weeks, we've been reading Isaiah 40, and perhaps passages that are come out of Isaiah 40 are becoming very familiar for you. You've turned them over in your mind. You might have even begun to memorize them. That allows us in order to pull God's word apart. That allows us to dwell. And lastly, we read to feel. Now, I know that you might think the word feel and Bible reading might not go together in some ways. But this passage in particular tells us that these words are to be written on our hearts. Reading the Bible cannot just be for us an exercise for our minds, but it has to be an exercise for our hearts. We have to read our, the Bible with our heart engaged with the text. What is it that moves us? What is it that causes us in order to praise God? What causes us to worship what causes us to love and to cherish God more? What causes us to feel conviction of sin? What causes us to lament and to mourn? Do we see that every passage, in many ways, points back to who he is? So we've seen that we have two calls. The first one is a call to hear, listen to this commandment, have a heart that loves the Lord our God. We're called to savor. This is how we begin to have a heart that loves the Lord our God. And so how do we respond? How do we respond in trust? Now, there are two particular temptations that Moses highlights in this section, verses 10 through 19, that might derail us from loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts. 
The first temptation we see is the temptation in order to forget, to forget the Lord in our abundance, starting in verse 12. It says, take care lest you forget the Lord. And all before that, in verse 11, it talks about he brought us into houses full of good things that we did not fill, cisterns that we did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that we did not plant. You see, the Lord had given them a bountiful gift of promise, and yet they would doubt. They would forget, excuse me. The second temptation is to doubt. Do we doubt the Lord in our need? And we see that in verse 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So what occurred at Massa? Perhaps some of you remember Israel had been wandering within the desert. They had been brought out. They had just seen and witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They were being continuously led by a pillar of fire and of cloud. And God was giving them manna from heaven in order to eat. But when they arrived at Massa, there was no water for them. And they began to question. They began to ask, Lord, where is this water? I thought that you would provide for me. They asked in Exodus 17, 7, they said, is the Lord among us or not? Where are you? There's a temptation for us to doubt in our need. And Moses is in many ways telling us to trust, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts in the midst of these temptations. Because whether we are in abundance or whether we are, not, or we are in need, there is a unique ability in both of those situations to draw out what is really within our hearts. In abundance, it becomes easier for our hearts to think that somehow we got ourselves into that position. We forget that the Lord has been gracious in giving us all that we have. Abundance also places us within easy reach of the things that might distract us from loving the Lord our God. We see that that was ultimately the sin that the Israelites committed. When they were brought into the promised land, they forgot. In contrast, the temptation of need is what our natural heart's reaction is when we are laid completely flat out, when even the most foundational pillars of security around us begin to shake. It's the thing that we run to that no longer is going to provide satisfaction to us, and we begin to question, we begin to doubt. We ask God in order to show himself. That's doubt in need. So you might ask, how do I guard myself then against these temptations? How do I continue to love the Lord my God as my, with all of my heart, with all of my soul, in light of these temptations? How do I not doubt? How do I not forget? Well, in Matthew 4, we see some striking comparisons. Just like the people of Israel had been wandering for 40 years in the desert, Jesus had been wandering in the desert for 40 days. Just like Jesus had just been baptized, called out, and he was identified as God's son, we also see that the Israelites went through a sort of baptism through the Red Sea. And they had been proclaimed to be God's people to all the surrounding nations as well. The Israelites, of course, were hungry and they were thirsty. And Jesus had been fasting from food and water as well. Jesus' first temptation was to make bread from stone, which was a temptation of need. The second temptation that he faced from Satan was to jump from a high place. 
That's a temptation in order to forget that God is in control, forget God's plan. And the last temptation was for, Satan, for Jesus to bow down to Satan, which is the temptation of committing idolatry, what we are handling with right here in this text. And in response to each temptation from the devil, Jesus responded with Scripture. Scripture that came directly out of this passage. Two, verses 13 and verses 18, and then also one from two chapters over in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you see, Jesus undoubtedly had these words written upon his heart because his response to temptation was Scripture. And where Israel ultimately failed the test, we see Christ succeeded in overcoming temptation. He alone loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his might. And so we can't just pause here and say, okay, we need to mimic Christ. Because even in mimicking or holding him up as an example, we have a foundational aspect of our hearts which we overlook. And that is what Ephesians 2 says. It says that we are dead in our hearts. We are dead in our trespasses, in our sin. Ephesians 4, 18 through 19 should be on the screen. It says, they, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and to practice every kind of impurity. So we not only should look to Christ as an example, but we need to have a foundational understanding that within the core of who we are, outside of Christ, our hearts are dead. They are dead, they are in darkness, they are callous, and they are hardened. So we cannot respond to Christ if we are dead. So how do we then have a heart like Christ? What are we to do? Well, Moses doesn't leave the Israelites without an answer. He says in Deuteronomy 36, it says that the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and that you may live. So we see that it is the Lord who is doing the action within the Israelites' heart of circumcising them, literally circumcising their hearts, setting them apart so that they may be able to love the Lord their God with all of their hearts. Ezekiel picks up on this language in 36, 26, when he says, I will give you, this is the Lord talking, a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And in Hebrews 10, 16, quoting from Jeremiah, it says, for this is the covenant that I will give you, that I will make with you after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their heart, and I will write them on your mind. You see, what we really need is a new heart, a new heart that is given to us when we look to Christ, what he did there on the cross, and we look to him in faith and we say, Lord, I want and I desire in order to fall after you, and my sin is what I need to confess. And I need to turn away from my sin, and Lord, please give me a new heart that I may follow after you with all of my heart. That's the heart that we need, and that's the one that we received 
through Christ. So then how do we fight against the temptations of abundance and the temptation to doubt in our need? How do we respond in trust? Well, we look to Christ. We respond the way that he responded. We recognize that we've received a new heart in him, that we no longer need to follow after the way of the world. We are set free from that. We can respond with scripture in the face of these temptations. And that unlocks for us obedience to Christ out of love. We said in the beginning, the main idea is that obedience to God flows out of a heart that has been changed to love him alone. The Lord changed our hearts so that we can respond in that way. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandment, and his commands are not burdensome. It's very often for us to think that we must, in many ways, that we are obligated in order to keep all the commandments that are written in this book. But what this is telling us is that these commandments are not in any way burdensome. In fact, receiving a new heart allows us to keep the commandments out of love for the Lord. So how does our text then conclude? Well, we are to respond in remembrance. Look down at verse 20. It says, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son. So how do we remember then to love the Lord with all of our hearts? Well, we teach them. We teach it by modeling the commandment, not only with our mouths, but also with our actions. This aspect of teaching the words of Scripture is repeated over and over again throughout this passage. We first see it in verse 1, when it says, um, when it says that the Lord commanded me to teach you. This is what Moses is talking about. We also see it directly commanded to us in verse 7, that we are to teach these words to our children. We also are told to talk of them within our houses, and they are to be written on the entrances of our gates. This mandate is reiterated by Jesus, of course, when he commands us in order to go into all the world and make disciples. He says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The home is not an exception to that. We are not only to tell the words, but we are to model them with our actions. And these words here will take on a new urgency for us when we read in light of what happens to the people of Israel. You see, after Moses dies, after giving these last words, Joshua leads them into the promised land. And they successfully take the land and they were victorious. But after Joshua has passed away, Judges 2.10 tells us, and all of that generation, so the generation who received these words from Moses, they were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. You see, they failed in many ways to listen to the words that Moses told them. They are to teach. 
Now, I'm not saying that our kids' salvation is going to rest on whether or not we are going to teach them or whether or not we are not going to teach them. They, of course, are going to need to follow after the Lord with their own heart. But the expectation from this passage is that we are helping them to know, to follow, and to trust by the words that we tell them and the actions that we perform within our home. Matt Chandler is is helpful in understanding this in his book called Family Discipleship. He says, you are not just hoping for your kids to know the Lord. You are dedicated and relentless in doing everything it takes to help them know more about their God, whatever the cost, no matter what. Your child will not escape your house without knowing the life joy, and freedom that comes with loving and serving God above all others. This is your biblical mandate as a parent. And so parents, are you dedicated to discipling your kids? Do your actions communicate to your kids that you love the Lord? Have you offloaded in many ways your biblical mandate, as Matt Chandler so says, onto perhaps the church, or onto the Christian school, or onto a grandparent, or perhaps a youth leader? Is prayer and Bible reading a structured part of your family routine? And and not in any way am I saying that this is easy. I'm a father of uh, almost one-year-old and an almost three-year-old, and I can tell you from experience, my wife and I, this gets oftentimes very messy, And also very confusing. For instance, one time I was asking my son, uh, who was there before the world was made? I know it's a a pretty difficult question for a three-year-old to answer. And so, of course, when he was unable to answer, I prompted him with God was there before the world was made. And in all the confidence of a three-year-old, he said, yeah, and grandpa. (laughs) It's messy. But don't give up hope. That does not mean in any ways that you are losing. And this isn't only a mandate that's given to us as parents. It's also given to us corporately as a church. I realize that not everyone in this room might have children or is married or that have kids any longer within your home. There's a corporate aspect to this teaching. And this message was delivered to Israel as a nation. You are to teach your children, Israel. They were told to put it on the gates of their city. In many ways, the gate was where they would go to meet people. And as you can imagine, above a gate, having these words written there would in many ways be implying to them that the conversations that they're having, the actions that they are taking, should be building into loving the Lord their God with all of their heart. And so we also... Here as a church, we also need to be reminding and encouraging those who are part of our spiritual family here to be dedicated to knowing and loving the Lord with all of our hearts. This is special importance when we consider that there might be those who are here with perhaps an unbelieving spouse, or perhaps there are kids here who have unbelieving parents. We as a church are supposed to come alongside in order to help, encourage, and pray for the people in those situations. So church, are we encouraging and reminding those around us in order to be dedicated to following after the Lord with all of our heart? 
are we involved in teaching these truths to the next generation? And are you a spiritual family and are we a spiritual family to those who are in need? And I realize that that is difficult and it requires sacrifice. And in many ways, I've been a benefit of all of that my whole life. And I thank many of you for that. But that's the community that we are called to be. Individuals in a church who responds in remembrance by teaching. Moses' call in this passage is far from an easy assignment. It's asking us to look into our hearts as much like a call is to ask us to perform open heart surgery. We cannot do it. And much like the Nixon tapes revealed that which was ugly and was scandalous in the White House, so too we often find when we look into our hearts things that are ugly and are scandalous as well. We find that the track of our hearts often pumps to a different tune, to the tune of an idol. And we often do not hear what Scripture has to tell us because our minds have been drowned out by that beat. We often do not respond because we are consuming and savoring perhaps a different message. But we cannot be without hope because we're not without grace. When we look to Jesus and we place our faith in him and his ability to have loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul and all of his mind, and we receive a new heart in him, then we can respond in trust and remembrance to all that he has commanded and done. And therefore, our obedience to the Lord flows out of a heart changed in order to love him alone. And this message can not only remain in the Old Testament, but we also goes forward into the New Testament. As we see, it's not only the heart of the law, but in many ways it is the heart of Scripture. And I just want to close the way that John closes in his epistle in, in 1 John 5, 20 through 21. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Dearly Father, Lord, 